Support for this podcast and the following message come from Internet Essentials from Comcast. Connecting more than 6 million low-income people to low-cost, high-speed Internet at home. So students are ready for homework, class, graduation, and more. Now they're ready for anything. I'm Bob Boylan with the Plus One Podcast, and today an interview with Todd Rundgren. Todd Rundgren's been making music for the past 50 years. His first records was with his band Naz in 1968, and later with his own groundbreaking solo pop albums. Those early albums, especially Something Anything, A Wizard, A True Star, always stretched the boundaries of what a solo artist can do with the technology of the day. He's also a lucrative and creative producer. Back then, for Badfinger, Grand Funk Railroad, The Band, The New York Dolls, Hall & Oates, Sparks, Meatloaf, XTC, the list is quite long. And these days, at 68, Todd Rundgren continues to have fun with music while living on the Hawaiian island of Kauai. And it's the long-distance collaborations he's done with Robin, Daryl Hall, Joe Walsh, Donald Fagan, and in particular, Trent Reznor, that has me listening again to his music. White Knight is his latest album, and the cut he constructed with Nine Inch Nails creator and his partner Atticus Ross has me intrigued. Here's a bit of their song, Deaf Ears. The world we make goes up in flames. It rains with ashes. We reenact the Hunger Games. It rains with ashes. It rains with ashes. It rains. So today, we premiere that song and online that video. I was so intrigued by the song and the record that I called him up on his home in Kauai. And on this Plus One edition of All Songs Considered, a conversation with Todd Rundgren. I've been listening to Deaf Ears uh, a number of times in a row. This is an awfully dark song. (laughs) (laughs) Are you kidding? We were trying to, you know, kind of ease our, you know, our hurts feelings with this song. <laughs> well, you made me not feel better, but I like the song. Okay. Um, could you tell me the origins of, of the tune? I was uh, wrapping up, actually, this current project, White Knight, and it's one of my um, most collaborative efforts, I guess. Um, I'm out here on the island of Kauai, and it's very hard to collaborate with people. And uh, it's a depressing time, <laughs> and so uh, sometimes depressing times call for, you know, confrontational material, you know, face up to the reality is a pain. And it uh, does have a, uh, it's got a contemporary element, especially as, you know, the EPA has been taken over by disbelievers, I guess. And, you know, the principal theme for me, of deaf ears is, of course, um, the destruction that we're doing to our own habitat. You made this video for uh, the song. Uh, you start in a beautiful field of, um, I'm, I'm actually terrible at naming flowers, but you Poppies, I think they are. Thank you, yes. <laughs> and you see a, a child being gently tossed in the air, if I remember right, or a young girl, but all the time it's, 
it's raining ashes, it's raining ashes. And I was curious, uh, you, you live in what I assume is quite a beautiful bit of, of nature. You're in a, an, uh, on it an is. island. It is a lovely, uh, lovely environment. And uh, aside from, you know, the, I guess the idyllic environment that everybody sort of expects, there is a different relationship to, uh, to the land. A lot of it seems to come from, you know, like Asia, the Japanese have a, a, a certain sort of relationship to their natural environment. Mm -hmm. And that's a big aspect of the, of the Hawaiian lifestyle, you know, is to be consciously aware of and appreciative of all of the blessings that you have here in terms of the terrific weather and the ocean and the sky and the fruits that grow on the trees and, and all of that, you know, it's, it behooves you to remain conscious of the boon that you're uh, taking advantage of. And that's part of why I like it here, you know, is that, you know, you are barefoot from day to day and uh i get up every morning and i see the ocean you know and i see the hills and i'm constantly reminded of you know what essentially is our birthplace and um you just have a different relationship to nature out here how did uh, this particular song come to be was it well i've done uh, a little bit of work with uh, Trent Reznor before so when I decided I was going to do a collaborative record he was like high on my list of people to get involved and he you know he was terrific he sent me essentially an entire album's worth of ideas to choose from <laughs> how do you receive this paint a picture for us are they sound files that he's sending you multi-tracks are they yeah he sent you know a big folder of stuff through Dropbox or something like that yeah. um, and when I figured out which actually I picked out two tunes. I wasn't, I couldn't decide at first, so I picked out two tunes and he sent me all the multi-tracks to those, what we call stems in the business. Stems meaning that each track, you might get a track for the for the kick drum and one for the snare and another one for the, a guitar and another for a synth. So just Yeah, everything's separated back into its original multi-track form like it would be in the studio. So I can uh, do an entire remix if I want and I can add or replace things. And so I added uh, vocals and a couple of other little flourishes, but otherwise it was mostly what Trent and uh, his partner Atticus Ross sent me. I'm going to play just a little touch of the, the top of the music, and if you could just say a little, just to give people a picture of what uh, you did. Is that okay? I did that? Uh, sure. Yeah. So is all this here, the piano, the synth, or did... All of that is uh, what they sent me. Mm -hmm. Although it didn't necessarily come in the same order. Okay, meaning? Meaning that since they give me uh, every single instrument on a separate track, I can move things around in relationship to each other. Okay. 
So what they gave me didn't necessarily start with a you know string sound fading in. That might have come in the middle of what uh, of what I received, and then I move it around into something that sounds like a song to me. So it's an interesting form of collaboration. You don't actually ask <laughs> the other person, "Oh, can I do this?" You know, or you know, "What do you think of this?" I essentially just do it. And uh, and then I send it back to them and say, well, here's what I did. Yeah. Uh, take it or leave it. <laughs> In a way. Right. And uh, as a matter of fact, um, uh, Trent and Atticus took it and they did a, actually a variation, another mix of the song that um, is different enough, you know, that I think that uh, at some point the label is going to release that as well oh, cool. for you know it's almost like looking at the song from a different angle while the lyrics and everything are all the same and the message is still the same uh, it comes at you in a different way it comes at you from a different direction hmm. yeah you hear this tone and you hear this uh, the atmosphere that they've created did that inspire mm -hmm. the words, or, or how does that happen for you? Well, in this particular instance, yeah, the you know the sound of the music obviously indicates something that, uh, as as so much Nine Inch Nails music does, you know, something is a little angsty going on here. Mm -hmm. Of all of the subject matter, you know, that was in the realm of what I was singing about, you know, that seemed to evoke my desire you know to uh, make some sort of a, a expression or statement about you know our place in this particular environment the world we make goes up in flames it's rains from ashes we reenact the hunger games it's rains take you to do something like what you did I mean well so much of it is already done right like I said I didn't have to work from scratch first of all come up with a musical idea then flesh it out with with various instruments and stuff I got all of that from them my understanding is that Trent and Atticus have been doing a lot of film work lately and so what they sent me was a sort of a catalog of ideas that they keep uh, in case you know it it would work with a, a particular scene in a film, something mm -hmm. like that. So the music is naturally evocative in that way, and it doesn't have a lot of melodic elements that lock you into a certain thing. 
Right. So it made a nice palette for me to, you know, kind of just imagine uh, the kind of vocal that I wanted to do over it. The one thing I didn't want to do is make it come off as if it was just a Nine Inch Nails record. Right. (laughs) You know, I had to have something of myself in there as well. And I'm sure that's what they would want as well. (laughs) Well, hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious, because you've made music, I guess, uh, since the late 60s. You've seen such technological change in the recording process. You've been uh, such a part of so many of those changes or, or certainly using the technology of the day. And I'm wondering about how this all sort of shapes the kinds of music you make. You know, if you took this idea and, and rewound the clock to 1968 to 50 years ago, the idea of what you did here is almost un- unimaginable. If somebody sends you a sound file 3,000 miles, 6,000, whatever, 1,000 miles away. Well, yeah, I mean, in those days, uh, I recall being stopped in uh, Heathrow Airport and taken into a little room because I was attempting to transport a 24-track tape to a friend of mine, you know, (laughs) to do some work on it, you know. And that was the way we transferred sound around in those days, you know, was a a box with about 20 pounds of tape in it. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, the, this kind of collaboration actually has not been practical until actually recently when we've got these file-sharing services like Dropbox and Hightail, yeah. you know, where you can take very large chunks of data and leave them for someone to pick up. And... It's partly the fact that, you know, we've got this new concept, the idea of, quote, cloud storage or storing stuff remotely, but also the fact that everyone has much greater bandwidth now than they used to have. Mm -hmm. Even though this would have been technically possible, let's say, 10 or 15 years ago, a lot of people were still using dial-up modems (laughs) at that point, you know. And at 1,400 bowed, I don't know how long it would take to download what essentially can be several gigabytes of material. So it's become much more of a you know, unremarkable thing, I guess, nowadays uh-huh. for musicians to collaborate and be able to share their entire projects with each other across the globe. I've made an album the last 10 years with friends and we're always in different locations and it does get easier and easier and it's still an ama- it still amazes me that, that it, it can be done. And the, the th- other thing that it makes me think of, and I think of winding back the clock to 1968 and doing this in 19 you know in in uh, in 2017 is that the attitude from a musician standpoint when you walked into a studio and you <coughs> helped me flesh this out but when you walked into a studio 50 years ago in the 60s and 70s there were just you could hear the cash register behind you in essence i mean it cost a lot of money to be in that studio and the and that precious time of trying to be a creative in a place where there was basically a, a clock running with, uh, with you know, and, and the and amount of money is so different than the atmosphere. And I don't know what your studio looks like, but I'm imagining it's a pretty comfortable private space for you to be uh, and, and come up with ideas and not be bothered and not worry about time. And just that technological difference is huge in making music. Well, I made that leap a long time ago. Mm-hmm. I made that leap like on my fourth album about 1970, 
two or three wow. when I built my first studio. Mm -hmm. And like so many other things in modern music, you can sort of blame it on the Beatles <laughs> when they became famous enough, in fact, too famous for their own good, and they became essentially a studio band because when they went out to play, they couldn't even hear themselves mm -hmm. over all the screaming. So right. <laughs> they essentially stopped touring and became a recording band. And when they would record, they would block book a studio and go in and occupy it until they were done, which might be weeks and possibly even months. So that concept didn't exist previously. The concept before that was like more like Frank Sinatra, where he shows up and he does one take. <laughs> and he's done a whole album in an afternoon. Yeah. So the idea of, you know, like writing in the studio, you know, arranging in the studio, um, actually learning the material in the studio because you haven't had an opportunity to go out on the road and play it and practice it. You know, that was unheard of. You know, wasting that much time in the studio was like considered, you know, profligate. And it wasn't until the Beatles justified it by, first of all, the obvious um, expected success of whatever they did, but also the different kind of attitude in terms of creativity and the kind of songs they were writing. They were no longer thinking in terms of what can we perform because they weren't performing anymore. Right. <laughs> they could do things that couldn't be performed live. Yeah. And uh, and that just changed everybody's attitude about being in the studio. Even my very first records with the NAS in the late 60s, we found a studio somewhere and we block booked it. We more or less owned it for whenever we wanted to show up and mm. forever, for however long we wanted to be in the studio. So that concept I was sort of born in me because of the fact that I was such a Beatles fan. Huh. And how about the concept of, as you explained at the beginning of me playing this song, well, I just took the piano and I moved it around and then I did. In other words, the, the digital notion has been around for a while, but it's still so very different. And I wonder how you think it might have affected the way you write, create, what, and and is it better or is there a betterness to it or or it just different? Well, it's it's a differentness. You know, not every musician is comfortable doing it that way. A lot of musicians still would rather just you know rehearse a song with a band and come in and and capture it in one take, and that's mm -hmm. real music. You know, there's that's never going to go away. But you could almost look at it as the difference between sculpting in stone and sculpting in clay. When you sculpt in stone, you know, once you've chipped something off, it's gone. You know, it's, it's fixed. <laughs> you know, there's nothing you can do, you know, to repair that. Whereas if you're sculpting with clay, you know, you can take some clay away or add some more clay, reshape it until it's set. It's still sculpture, you know, in the same way that it's still music. One form of music doesn't allow a lot of flexibility but then again there are other approaches that allow you almost the ultimate flexibility and it's just your obligation to decide when it's done do you have a preference well i've gotten used to the latter of course mm -hmm. and um ever since i built my first studio and started 
essentially recording records without any sort of assistance. In other words, didn't need an engineer. Right. Started moving the entire process more into the control room rather than in the studio space. So you would set up a keyboard or a synthesizer and start the machine and play your little <laughs> bit, you know, and if you didn't get it right, you would take another pass at it, but essentially using the studio as a part of the compositional aspect of music, not simply capturing the sound. In other words, I could write a piano part and learn how to play it and then go into the studio under some sort of time constraint, you know, and try and get my best performance of that. And that would be the only option I had. But if I own the studio and I'm not under a time constraint, I can play a piano part and then say, hmm, I don't think I like this part of it. I'm going to change that part. And then you can change that uh, to something that maybe is actually more musical, that works a little better in context. Essentially, you know, you're using sound as your, you know, as, as kind of a way of, comp, uh, of getting compositional feedback. As soon as you come up with an idea, you lay it down, you listen to it, you make a decision about how apt it is, you know, and then you either keep it or you redo it, which is completely different than having to decide, okay, this is the piano part and I'm going to learn this piano part. Right. And that's going to be the piano part. In the bigger scope of of music and all the years of you making music, I, I'd imagine that, I'm going to think that anymore, it might not matter to you what people think of, you, of your music or where your music fits in. Well, that attitude, I guess, set in pretty early with me. As soon as I left the NAS, I made two records with yeah. my original band when I was still in my teens. I left the NAS, I was about 20 years old. I was living with clothiers in the West Village and designing and installing lights in a dance club and stuff. <laughs> and it looked like my musical career might have been over. And I got approached to join the Albert Grossman organization as an engineer and producer. And that essentially gave me the opportunity, first of all, to learn a lot about music and about the process of making records. And at a certain point, it gave me the opportunity to make records of my own, kind of like as a reward for the work I was doing <laughs> for Albert Grossman. And everyone was a bit surprised when my first album, when I delivered my first album, and there was a song that became a radio hit on it. So I never had planned to be, you know, a solo musician so much as just a guy who made records as a hobby and made a living producing records for other people. So I stopped caring what people thought about my records very early on. <laughs> I didn't have to care. I already was making a living producing records for the band and Badfinger and Grand Funk Railroad and stuff like that, you know, and making a handsome living at it. Why should I care how successful my own records were? But that gave me the freedom to go places musically that a lot of other people may not have bothered to go. And I think it's also probably why uh, on this record and and so many of your collaborations, the variety of people, the Daryl Halls from that to Joe Walsh and Robin and Trent Reznor, it's just a, the scope is so huge. It is such an admiration for the things you do because you tackle so many different things. And uh, I think you have a, you have a mass appeal, 
even though maybe your records don't have mass appeal? Well, I have nothing against popular music. <laughs> you know, I grew up, yeah. I grew up listening to it, but it's not the only thing I listened to, yeah. and not the only thing that influenced me. My dad did not like contemporary popular music in the house. What was he playing? So I got ex I got exposed to you know a lot of you know twentieth century and nineteenth century classical music and a lot of show music and it wasn't as if my dad was a you know was a rube when it came to music he had sophisticated tastes he just didn't care for you know the rock and roll as it were so i got exposed to um you know to a pretty broad variety of of styles and and a lot of you know very important seminal music as well and when i uh, eventually left high school and realized I didn't have a talent for much else than music. <laughs> All of that kind of, you know, was, it was my arsenal in, in a way. Any of the music that I was listening to up until that point came through that filter, came through a more sophisticated filter, I guess, than perhaps the average person because I had been exposed to so much other music by the time I had left high school that um, I was pretty well equipped, I think, to deal with new genres and things like that. Um, uh, you know, another thing about the Beatles was the fact that they adopted genres and invented genres that didn't exist before and then would discard them and move on to something else. And then some other band would make a living off of it. You know, <laughs> like they, you know, they put out Eleanor Rigby and then a band like the Left Bank would make entire albums that were like Eleanor Rigby. So the idea of, you know, blending genres, adopting, you know, new musical ideas and that sort of thing just seemed natural to me. Well, it still keeps coming out. What is this album, 25 or 26 or? I, I don't know. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it, depends how, it depends kind of how you count. Okay. <laughs> so. All right. Well, listen, I love talking to you today. And uh, I, uh, unfortunately, I'm going to lose this room, this studio. <laughs> Remember, we were talking about studio time. I'm going to lose this oh, studio yeah. <laughs> in, in, in about 30 seconds. So I really appreciate you taking time, and it's great hearing your music. Thank Terrific. You. Thank you very much. Thanks for and, this. Uh, Cheers. I'll, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Be well. Thank okay. you. Bye-bye. Todd Rundgren. His new album is called White Night. It comes out May 12th on Cleopatra Records. You can see the video for Deaf Ears on our website. For NPR Music, it's All Songs Considered.
Did you know that over 15 million people a month listen to NPR podcasts according to PodTrack's podcast metrics? Check out all our shows at npr.org slash podcasts. That's npr.org slash podcasts.